Australia's highest paid media boss took home $3.4 million last year. We take a look at what CEOs are being paid in the media world. Also today, sport is still king on free-to-air TV. The Yes campaign gains media momentum, but will it be enough? And Spotify has conquered podcasts, now they're going after Audible with audiobooks. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, a discussion of everything under Australia's media and marketing umbrella. I'm Michael Thompson and I'm joined today by Sean Aylmer. Sean, good afternoon. Hello, Michael. Now, Sean, we have a fair bit to get through today, but I've got to say, in Adam Lang's absence, he, he and I have been doing this podcast for the last uh, few weeks, Adam has taken the week off. He's, he's hmm, having a, well, a well-deserved holiday. but. Will it surprise you at all to hear that he is the only person that would be going on a cycling holiday, but wanted to take his microphone so that he could still join the Mumbrella cast remotely? Uh, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, firstly, the idea of a cycling holiday. Those two words are not compatible. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. And then to take your work gear on the bike, presumably, mm-hmm. so you can join. Ridiculous. I have to have some massive saddlebags. <laughs> I'd love to see. Adam's quite a slight fellow. So you could imagine him on a bike. He's very fit. He's lean. But with those big saddlebags mm. pushing up the hills. Oh, God. What a sight. Oh, it'd be quite extraordinary. Anyway, we convinced him not to, uh, not to take the microphone. We banned him, actually. Basically, yeah, to have a week off and that we would jump into it ourselves and, and see how we go. And look, our, our main story this afternoon is is one that I mean, we do the Fear and Greed business news podcast together every day. And this is the kind of story that would come up on that podcast anyway. But uh, it's all about CEO pay. And this always generates a lot of interest. Do you consider yourself a voyeur, Sean? Oh, t- absolutely. Because I'm a journalist. Of course, I'm a voyeur. That's part of the job description. Yeah, and I think it's human nature, isn't it, to like mm. to know what other people are being paid and whether it's kind of people in, in an equivalent position to yourself or kind of at the top of the company. I think it is just human nature to want to know. Totally. Anytime I see remuneration, pay, those sorts of words, I at least look at the first sentence of a story because I'm interested. Yeah, and it's, it generates a lot of interest, as I said, and particularly at our big media companies and particularly when times are tough and the ad market is down. And so that all kind of combines into a terrific story that Darcy Song has done today, uh, going through annual reports, putting together a really detailed profile on what media bosses in Australia are receiving. So just to kind of take a look at some of the the key figures in Australian media, you've got the highest paid executive in FY23 was nine CEO, Mike Sneesby. He received $3.4 million in total pay. James Warburton at seven was next on $2.8 million, down from $4.6 million the previous year. An interesting one, former Southern Cross Stereo CEO, Grant Blackley, who actually finished up at the end of FY23, he received a $2.4 million remuneration package. And there's there's more people and more numbers in the story. So I'd certainly encourage you to go and have a look at it. But Sean, you have been a, a business journalist for a very long time. Uh, you've been hanging around media companies uh, for years. You were the editorial director at Fairfax. So I would, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you would know your way around these annual reports reasonably well. Yes, but you know, remuneration is such a tricky area. And with short-term incentives, long-term incentives, bonus payments, deferred bonus payments, options, strike prices of those options, really, really hard to get your head around the actual numbers. Now, what Darcy did was look at the statutory 
wage of the individuals, which is the best way to do it. And, I mean, she came up with this uh, research, which is fantastic. And I, I think some of the numbers, so Mike Sneesby runs Channel 9. Nine's pretty much the biggest media company, pure media company on the market. $3.4 million. Is it a lot of money? I think so. I mean, if Nine is worth about 3 or $4 billion market cap, right? So if you think of some of the very, very big companies, so BHP's worth $220 billion. Its boss, Mike Henry, is one of the best paid CEOs in the country, fair enough, at about $10 million. CSL, they, they always pay their boss a lot. So Macquarie is the real standout. Shamara Wickram and Ayaka uh, from Macquarie Group, she earned about $24 million last financial year, I think. But generally, I mean, the top 20 CEO is kind of a $7 million plus, but then it sort of goes below that. I think for a company that's not that big to be paying the boss that much money. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to get comfortable with that. It, I was going to ask you really because the, the market cap does play a role then in, in essentially justifying or calculating and then justifying the salary. And that's, uh, that is interesting, the comparison then, say, between nine and BHP. But then how do you then compare, say, seven and nine? And seven is substantially smaller than nine at, at, at what about 400 million yes that's about right so seven is part of the seven group holding so it's a bit tricky to break it out but let's say 400 and he's earning what 2.4 or something like that oh sorry 2.8 i think mm-hmm. that's James right yeah like uh, that to me seems a little bit out of the box now, what they chairs and boards always argue is that it's a market and you've got to get the best talent. I think that's all right. So you've got to pay for the best talent. Still, when your company is that small to be paying the boss that much, it's a bit rich, isn't it? Yeah, I will, I, I think so, just on the, the surface of it. And then I suppose you need to look at the market at the moment, and and media companies broadly are under a lot of pressure at the moment. Ad markets are tough. Nine, for instance, had double-digit falls in in full-year earnings and in profit. Uh, so, how then does this play out at AGMs when you've got shareholders there, essentially asking boards to justify the amount that is being paid to CEOs when revenue and profit is falling and CEOs are still on fairly substantial remuneration packages. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think about it probably differently to many. You want your CEO to be remunerated in line with what shareholders get. Having said that, in really tough times, and COVID being the great example, that's when you want a really good CEO to step up and I actually didn't care that CEOs got paid a lot during COVID if they did a good job keeping their businesses running. In the good times, when everything's fine, I mean, I know shareholders are happy, but it's kind of easy. Well, I don't know if it's easy, but it's easier running a company in the good times than it is in bad times. I mean, Alan Joyce from Qantas obviously got all the attention over the last four to six weeks. Now, whether or not he did a good or bad job, he kept the airline running. He convinced the government to give it huge amounts of money. Uh, he did take a big pay cut during COVID. And I remember at the time thinking, actually, that's a time when you want Alan Joyce, your boss, to actually earn the money because he's working a lot harder in the downtimes. But, of course, that's hard 
to make that argument to shareholders. Yeah, and I can imagine it would lead to some fairly uh, fiery scenes at AGMs. I, I, I should keep the kind of uh, glee out of my voice at the thought of fiery AGMs, but it's always fascinating to see a little bit of drama. Ah, oh, look, apart from the fights about the scones and jam, there's not a lot of drama at AGMs, so you would do like to see a good CEO remuneration stoush. Oh, now, uh, one last question on this, really. Uh, Sean, what kind of impact do you think this kind of data has on staff internally? Because broadly across the ASX 200 at the moment, CEO pay has been rising faster than than most workers. Yeah, I think it's about 15% up. Inflation's at about 5 or 6%. I think 4% is a fair guess in terms of what workers are getting. So CEOs are getting paid three or four times more. The, the increase is three or four times more than workers are getting. That's just not a good look. Everyone, when you see what your CEO is earning, you think, well, I'm doing a good job. They're earning too much. So it's necessary, I think, in terms of transparency to ensure that CEO remuneration is outlined. But it's just, it's just never a particularly good look when someone's earning $3 million and their company's going backwards. Yeah. Uh, there's a really interesting point that you made, though, about the fact that arguably a CEO has to work even harder during a downturn. Uh, and it's a, a, a fascinating way to look at it. Uh, worth a mention as well, Sean, is another story that we ran on Umbrella recently. And, and this one received an incredible response. Uh, it was a profile of what everybody is earning across Adland. And definitely check this one out. I'll put a link in today's show notes as well. But just working through pretty much every position, every job title within the industry from kind of a marketing coordinator on a salary of say $75,000 excluding super, add the word digital in, digital marketing coordinator suddenly is worth $90,000, a social media coordinator, $90,000. In the agency space, you've got an account manager up to $85K, an account director, $130,000, a PR communications manager between $100,000 and $130,000. It it is the ultimate kind of in, in, in voyeurism, really, to go through this list and go, this is what people are earning elsewhere in the industry. And then naturally, of course, we had to do the follow-up the, the next day, Sean, which was, if this is what uh, everyone else is getting paid, how do you ask for a pay rise? So I'd check both of those out. Yeah. And also when you're looking at those numbers, think about what a nurse earns, think about what a teacher earns, think about what a, a policeman earns. Hmm. Not a bad industry to be in media. It really, say. it really is. It's about keeping it in perspective. Is that what you're trying to say to me right now, That's Sean? That's right. I'm trying to say that. And like digital marketing coordinators, really, I mean, a lot of value right now. Ninety up to ninety thousand dollars, and you know, just kind of it, not an easy job. And you're you are very much at the whim of results. It's still pretty good salary, ninety k for. A, kind of coordinator of digital marketing. Yeah, no, it's not too bad at all, but definitely check that list out. It is fascinating and have a look at Darcy's story as well on CEO pay. Sean, we'll take a very quick break and get into a few of the other stories on Umbrella this week. So Sean, we are each picking a story that Umbrella has covered this week and, and just bringing it to the table for discussion, for lively, vigorous discussion. What uh, What's your story today? What have you picked out? Well, it's TV ratings, and this all comes on the back of the AFL Grand Final and the NRL Grand Final last weekend, and just the fact that how well the Matildas did. So the Matildas, the women's 
Australian football team in the Women's World Cup earlier in the year, they drew huge viewership. In fact, the top four programs of the year were all Matilda games, then the AFL came in, uh, followed by the first state of origin, which is the rugby league fixture, and then the National Rugby League grand final last weekend. few things. The Matildas went beyond sport. It became a movement. Mm. And I think in one of those Matildas game against England, 42% of TVs were tuned in to the Matildas. That's just phenomenal. That's an extraordinary number. It is. I mean, they sort of say it's probably the largest viewership ever in Australian history. Imagine if you weren't watching it. Imagine just this feeling that you have missed out on something that is actually a, a, a social, cultural event, really. I don't, I don't have to imagine that, Michael. Did you miss out? I was overseas at the time. And you couldn't watch it? I, well, to be honest, it was 6.30 in the morning. I was in uh, St. Louis in the US and I was with my son and we were in a hotel and we went down to the lobby and turned it on. And so we did... We didn't see all the game, but we saw about 15 minutes. It was the 15 minutes that Sam Kerr, Australia were down 1-0, and Sam Kerr did that spectacular goal to uh, even it up. And even though we lost, we, my son Ollie and I were screaming in this lobby in this St. Louis hotel. All the Americans were looking at us like we were idiots. Yeah, especially, what, before 7 a.m.? Yeah, yeah, 6.30 a.m. with the orange juice. But I'm, I've got to say I'm one that didn't really watch the whole game. Oh, but you were still part of it. You still you still saw a bit of it and you still were kind of tapped into what was a really special moment in Australian sport. Yeah. The other thing about this, of course, is sport is still king in free-to-air TV and you see them paying out big sums of money to get the rights to these major codes. And, you know, the top seven shows this year is sport. Now, you add in reality TV and the news and current affair and they're kind of the three pillars of broadcast TV. I don't know. I mean, is Patch still on? Is Young and Restless still on in the middle of the day? Don't know. Like, but is pa- did you just say is Patch still on? You knew what I was talking about too, didn't you? No. Oh, didn't you ever watch Patch? No. When you were at university in Bathurst? Yes, but what, what, what? Didn't you skive off and put Young and Restless on about lunchtime? You know me, Sean. Can you ever imagine me oh, skiving God. off from anything? Uh, I Did you know that once I turned up to a lecture and I was the only person that actually turned up to the lecture. And this was in this was in kind of pre-online uh, course days. So it wasn't as though everyone was just dialing in on Zoom. I was the only person Ooh, that turned up out of about 200 people. And th- that was the exact moment at which I realized that I was a nerd. Really? It took that, it took that long? <laughs> it took that long. Thank you. Please move on. Well, so, I mean, so... so my point here is that we have sport, we have reality TV, and we have news and current affairs. They're kind of the three pillars. Sport is the big one, clearly. I thought it was really interesting, another story this week, that Channel 10 is bringing back gladiators. Now, gladiators, it's sort of become part of the zeitgeist gladiators, which is pretty amazing for a show that only had three seasons in 18 months. Is that all? Yeah, only three seasons, yet... The, you know, the names of the characters and they basically, if they haven't seen Gladiators, they basically built the crap out of each other and fall into water and stuff like that. And it has become almost for people my age, you look back on it and think, oh, wow, remember Gladiators? Wasn't it great? Now, I don't even know how many shows I watched, but it, it has become part of popular mythology. Will it work in 2023 though? 
Oh, it's it's so interesting that you say that about being part of, of popular mythology and so odd that it only ran for 18 months because when I look back, it, it feels as though it ran for about a decade because it yeah. was just, it was that, like people still quote this show. Yeah. And the characters and uh, absolutely yeah. and Taipan and all of them. And it was just, yeah. it was, uh, I don't know whether it will work in, in 2023 because it is an inherently violent show and sure it's kind of cartoon violence. It's not like UFC or anything like that, but in the age of kind of concussions and awareness around all of this and trying to downplay the kind of resorting to violence for everything, maybe it's going to strike the wrong note. I don't know whether it's going to take off. And I don't know necessarily whether it's going to be family viewing, which is what I know 10 is aiming for it to be. Well, Nathan Jolly has a great story, had a great story during the week. And 10 said that it is absolutely family viewing. That's what they're banking on. And I just don't see how that's the case in 2023. It'll be really interesting to see how that goes. Will you be sitting down to watch it? Uh, yes. He <laughs> sounds like certain. His fingers crossed. I will. I just want to see someone kind of go through the, the gauntlet and I just want to see if they bring <laughs> back all of the old ones and just, I mean, obviously not the gladiators themselves because you can imagine their knees would be shot and kind of the... Oh, uh, yeah. You can imagine that, like the, the gladiators, the Masters Games equivalent and, and you get all the original gladiators out there. I'd like to see that. You've given this some thought, haven't you? I actually have. I've given it too much thought. Just before we move on from uh, sport and the AFL and NRL uh, ratings, Nathan, speaking of Nathan Jolly, he wrote the the Weekend Mumbo, which is our the weekend newsletter that comes out, was a really interesting story, basically asking the question of when we have the AFL and the NRL grand finals falling on the same weekend, why on earth is it not the equivalent of the Super Bowl in Australia? Mm, because... It, when you've got these two major sporting events, then surely it would put give this this perfect prime time experience for uh, advertisers and, and and greater budgets for the ads that are being made in the same way that the Super Bowl does when it actually becomes almost kind of cinematic quality and people talk about the ads just as much as they do the actual sport. And in doing so, Nathan was making this point that, that that might actually then attract in other viewers who aren't just there for the AFL or for the NRL and, and might actually help to kind of boost up what appeared to be somewhat flagging numbers. Because last year, we were looking at, uh, for the AFL, 2.18 million Metro, 3.07 National. And for the NRL, it was 1.67 Metro and 2.76 National. They were kind of the Metro figures, the worst since 2001. And the the national figures were the second worst since 2003. So it really was not looking good. So uh, happily, these uh, numbers from the weekend just gone were stronger. They they were much, much better up on, definitely up on that. But still, I think the case for it to become Australia's answer to the Super Bowl, it would be fantastic from an advertising perspective and from a viewer's perspective that all of a sudden you'd have these blockbuster ads and the real kind of focus on the entertainment value of it as well for what it's worth. Absolutely. Mind you, the grand finals aren't always on the same weekend. I mean, they were this year. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. I'm not quite sure why. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. All right. Shall we uh, move on to another story, Sean? My story this week is a very serious one, actually, and it feels like uh, we've had a bit of fun talking about gladiators. Mine is is going into a very serious topic, and it's about the voice, and we're in the, the final 
10 days now, I think, of the, the campaign ahead of the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which is taking place on the 14th of this month. A great story today on Mumbrella, which is about the Yes campaign enjoying a last-minute surge, at least in terms of coverage. And so this was research from Meltwater, uh, which collates data from news, broadcast, social media channels, a whole bunch of different sources to show the share of engagement, conversation and coverage of both the Yes and No campaigns. And there have been 4.86 million mentions since the start of this year. So this is a story and an issue that has really dominated a lot of conversations. Unsurprisingly, there's been a sharp rise in the last month, up by about 50% as we get closer and closer to the vote. And, but here's, here's where it gets really interesting, I think, that the Yes campaign has had 802,000 instances of engagement up by 55% over the past month compared to the No campaign, uh, which has had 311,000. And you may not be surprised, uh, Sean, to hear that Twitter is seeing a particularly big increase in in Yes campaign activity. You know, I'm actually just surprised to hear that Twitter or X is actually seeing a big increase in any activity at all, because I thought most people had kind of abandoned that platform. Mm. But uh, I I don't know what you thought of this, though, the the fact that ABC uh, and The Australian are the top two key opinion leaders for the Yes campaign on X. Uh, This is according to that data. While for the No campaign, it is Sky News Australia. It is interesting considering the Australian and Sky News are both part of the the News Corp stable. Yeah, so Sky News Australia, No campaign, fair enough. Totally understand that. The Australian, as a key opinion leader for the Yes campaign? I mean, that's just incredible you know i've been away for four or five weeks one thing i have noticed when i left the australian was continually running stories about the no campaign over the five weeks i came back in the last few days the tone of the coverage in the australian has changed dramatically really Uh, yeah and i really that's one of the things i i really noticed when i started reading the australian again because i expected that no tone to be there uh, so maybe it's not as surprising as we think, though I still think that is surprised. ABC News, key opinion leader on the Yes campaign. ABC, it's supposed to be neutral, so you don't really want it as yes or no, quite apart from what you believe in personally. Yeah. So in a sense, Sky News Australia, no, fair enough, but the Australian as a yes is astounding. ABC News on the yes side probably isn't astounding i'm not sure that that's where it should be though Uh, now obviously this data sean is just about media activity and and conversations and the polls themselves as in indicating voter uh, intentions are very much suggesting that the no vote uh, will win what do you reckon we'll see in terms of in an advertising sense we'll see between now and saturday week in order to sway voters you can imagine that it's going to be fairly intense Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a ton of money thrown at it from yes advocates more than no advocates. Obviously, we'll see the politicians doing their thing. We are increasingly seeing companies and sporting teams and the like coming out and taking positions. No one's really taking a position on the no side. They are taking positions on the yes side. And as we get closer, and it seems that there's a lot of people still uncertain, a lot of people sort of soft knows, they call them, or uncertain. There's been reports that uh, in different ethnic communities, Greeks, Italians, etc., there's a lot of indecision there. I think we will see quite a bit of money thrown at that in the sort of next eight or nine days. 
Whether it gets it across the line, I think it's very, very difficult to win a referendum when both sides of politics don't agree. But I reckon there'll be a lot of spend in the next eight or nine days. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned how hard it is. It's, it seems hard to to pass a referendum in general because I wasn't aware of this, just how few have actually succeeded, that just eight of 44 referendums have passed since the first one was held back in 1906. And, and obviously a double majority in terms of a, of a majority of voters in a majority of states is a very high bar to clear. Uh, so, yeah, I think that we will see a fair amount of money spent over the next eight, seven, eight, nine, ten days in order to try and kind of sway voters who are still undecided at this point. Yes, and my final word on that is we're not saying yes or no, we're just saying be informed when you vote. Absolutely. One last story. I know that we would typically only do kind of three stories, but a little bonus story, Sean, for you. Yes. Which I find fascinating, this one. Spotify, it's because that we are in the audio space, so I'm kind of drawn to this one like a moth, drawn to like flames and things. Obviously, moths aren't drawn to Spotify. Uh, Spotify is getting into audiobooks. Obviously, Spotify is known for streaming music and it's become one of the biggest players in the podcast space. Massive deals there, particularly, say, with Joe Rogan in the United States and data out of the US earlier this year showed uh, that while Apple was biggest for downloads, Spotify was the biggest for total listeners to podcasts. So really a fantastic rivalry there between these two giants. And a good article today on Mumbrella by, again, Nathan Jolly, uh, it says that uh, Spotify is now targeting Audible and moving into audiobooks. This is for the premium subscription tier. And Australia is actually getting this first along with the UK. But it does seem pretty big. There's a catalogue of 150,000 audiobooks. Are you an audiobook listener? Have you ever listened to an audiobook, Sean? I have, and my father had sight problems, so he always listened to audio books many, many years ago. This this is 30 years ago, and I've always been a bit fascinated with them, and on car trips, I've listened to audio books. I think they're fantastic. Yeah. This shift by Spotify, I think, is a real game changer. I think you might be right, and, and to me, it's actually quite clever the way they've set this up, because it offers 15 hours of audio books per month. Uh, and then you can buy 10-hour top-ups after that. And so, uh, uh, say, a 350-page book, for instance, is about 10 hours of listening. Right. But So as soon as then you get into, say, a longer kind of Stephen King or, or say, Ken Follett or Kate Morton or kind of these really popular but really large books yep. that you are looking at 20 hours or 25 hours. And so putting it at that 15-hour mark is generous enough that it will get through a whole lot of popular books but it will encourage people to be buying those top-ups. So I think it's actually quite a uh, quite a clever uh, model. Really, it shows how much audio is booming uh, and also just how competitive this space is getting. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I would leave on audiobooks really depends on the reader too. Oh, the, oh, the narrator. The narrator, yeah. Yes, yeah, sorry, I thought you meant the person actually reading it. I'm like, yeah, that, that's also true. You are, you are absolutely right. No, the narrator. Yeah. Critical. Yeah. If you don't like the voice, you don't listen. No, no, that is uh, true. And uh, just picking a random audiobook. I'm just, okay, I picking one here. It's called How to Be Remembered. And just, oh, really? Yeah, funnily enough. <laughs> Who wrote that one? Uh, it, is, it is one, this really nice guy, good-looking young fella, Michael Thompson, his name is. And uh, anyway, uh, would, I, I did actually look it up on Spotify to see if I was in that uh, catalogue of 100. Uh, is it? Yes, indeed. Oh, I am, fantastic. I am there. So uh, somebody who's using uh, their premium tier 
could actually use their first 15 hours to listen to 10 hours of how to be remembered. I mean, it is only 10 hours to listen to, so you get the whole lot in five hours surplus. Fantastic. Everybody wins. Everybody, including yourself. I wasn't even thinking about that, Sean. No, 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 no. This was a selfless act for others. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Michael. This is the Mumbrella Cast. Remember to hit follow on the podcast. Head along to mumbrella.com.au for more information on everything that we've talked about today. I'll put links in today's show notes as well. Thanks for your company. See you next time. 